Historic preservation and smart growth are cut from the same cloth and interconnected in a variety of important ways. When we grow smart, we revitalize historic communities and keep from sprawling outward. It's a message that Preservation Maryland has been making for years, but in the past several months, the organization has become much more serious about the issue following its merger and absorption of Thousand Friends of Maryland, the statewide smart growth organization. Kim Brandt, the former executive director of Thousand Friends, now heads up Smart Growth Maryland, a campaign of Preservation Maryland. On this week's PreserveCast, we'll learn why the organizations merged and what it could mean for the future of a smarter Maryland. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined in studio by Kimberly Brandt, the director of Smart Growth Maryland, a program of Preservation Maryland. Kim originally hails from Fredericksburg, Virginia, a city well-known for its history, but has been a resident of Baltimore City since 2000. Kim leads Smart Growth Maryland, a campaign of Preservation Maryland, which focuses on smart growth education and advocacy efforts that support the preservation of forest, farms, open space, and the revitalization of Maryland's cities and towns. Kim is a graduate degree in urban and regional planning from Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond and has worked as a professional planner for nearly 20 years. Her work experience includes local land use planning and natural hazard mitigation planning for the state of Maryland, where she served as the state's hazard mitigation officer. More recently, she served as the executive director of Thousand Friends of Maryland, a smart growth advocacy organization with which Preservation Maryland has recently merged. Kim, it is a pleasure to have you with us here at the organization and on PreserveCast. Thank you. So you grew up in Fredericksburg, so um, you basically have to love history. I mean, I think it's like required if you live there. Yes, that's Either you, true. you go one way or the other. You probably love it or you hate it. Right. There's really no middle ground. Right. And what gets you into the career of planning? Planning is an interesting thing, right? I mean, it's like this idea and sort of a very organized mind that wants to put things together, at least that's the way I think of it. Is that sort of how you went down that road? What did you start thinking, I want to be a planner? I was living in, in Fredericksburg when the big suburban mall was built. I lived through the the time when uh, the department stores and, and shops downtown closed as a result of the mall being built and all of this development around the mall. So I think that was probably the first thing that got me interested in planning and development issues. Um, and then I went to college and, and studied social work, actually, and, and worked directly in case management and saw that a lot of the people that I worked with had trouble getting to jobs. They lived in communities where there wasn't a lot of green space. They lived in communities where there weren't a lot of employment opportunities. And even though they were experiencing this individually, I mean, it was obvious to me that this was about sort of how we plan and and sometimes how we plan badly and and fail people in the communities that that have the most needs. So you very clearly and in a, in a real way saw the impact that poor planning can have on health. It's interesting to come at it that way. I think a lot of times people like sort of realize, oh, there is a health component to this, but it's almost like you turn that upside down. Like you saw the health component and that perhaps kind of took you to the planning side. Right. 
Is that fair? I mean, is that kind of, and then did you go back for, to, for more education to be, go into planning? So I went to graduate school for planning and actually graduated 20 years ago this year. All right. Yeah. And first job out in the field doing the work of a planner was? So my first job was from Mon- Montgomery County, Virginia, which is a mountain county. It's where Blacksburg and Christiansburg are located. And it's very different than Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, every once in a while, we would get a call from someone who was interested in building, say, like a 4,000-unit apartment complex. And it was clear that they were calling the, the wrong Montgomery County near D.C., and what kind of work were you doing there? How big was the office? Were you sort of the sole planner? This was, no, there, there were three planners on staff. And we also had the inspectors um, that were in our department. And you did a little bit of everything. So it was a great first job out of college because you had a lot of interaction with citizens and, and working on comprehensive planning and development review. Um, you got to do everything. And so what... How did you end up getting to Thousand Friends in Maryland, which was sort of the last stop before here at Preservation Maryland? What was the, I know there was probably several different stops uh, in the interim there. So I've worked for local governments and state governments in Maryland and became interested in land use advocacy based on some of what I was seeing at the local government level in particular, with a lot of development resulting in the loss of farmland and and, um, a a failure to reinvest in established communities. Um, We still have a situation in Maryland where it's, it's, it's not necessarily easy for developers to do the right thing. We still hear from the development community that it's easier to develop these greenfield sites um, than it is to, to develop in our cities and towns. And so, I mean, you were kind of coming of age as a planner during the heyday of smart growth then, really. I right. mean, like when this whole term, this whole idea kind of comes about. So it's a pretty exciting time and sort of like this idea that we can we can accomplish all of this. I guess it must sort of be frustrating to still hear this many years on that like, well, it's still easier just to rip up a farm. Right. Like, that's such a depressing thing to hear. Right. Like, yeah. why? Why is it still? And I mean, maybe the question for you as the planner is, why? Right. Why is it still easier to rip up a farm? Right. Do you, I mean, do you have any answer to that? Like, what? why do we still make it more difficult? Or what stands in the way? There are so many reasons. I mean, unfortunately, it's not one thing. If it was right. one thing, we could just go at that. But it's a, a combination of, of things. Any big thing, I mean, in terms of actual big barriers that you see on a regular basis? I think in some of our cities and towns, it's 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 hard for developers just to get through the review and approval process. Um, and that's something, I mean, I do have experience with. My last local government job, planning job, was in development review. And um, I think some some jurisdictions do a better job than others of, of getting projects through the process. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I guess if you do just have a blank canvas, you can kind of just plop everything down. And, and there's not a lot of complexity with that when you're reusing a historic structure or building in a town. There's a lot of different little things to think about. And I guess more neighbors too. More neighbors. I was just going to say that. And that's something the developers always bring up is when you develop that site that's out in the middle of nowhere, no one's complaining. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, no one except you can, because then you got to work with Thousand Friends of Maryland, which is an organization that just recently um, merged with Preservation Maryland. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that. But 
What was Thousand Friends story? What kind of work did it focus on? So Thousand Friends was formed 20 years ago to be the state's smart growth advocacy organization. And initially, the focus was on state level policy. Now, I was hired six years ago because of my local government background to be the person who focused at the local level. What they were seeing is that um, there were a lot of good policies that were being adopted at at the state level, but because land use in particular is, is a local issue, there, there was not effective implementation at the local level. And so really your work for those past six years and, and continuing on has been all about implementation at the local level, which is, would you, I mean, you might suggest it since you're doing it, but the most critical and perhaps the most difficult component of smart growth work? It is because every, every county is different and, and has different a different culture um, and different priorities, but but that's where the decisions are made about how land is going to be used. So just as sort of background material, because people might find it interesting, um, you know, Preservation Maryland, which powers PreserveCast, recently made the decision to absorb and merge with Thousand Friends of Maryland, which was the statewide, as Kim was describing, um, smart growth advocacy organization. And I could describe from, I guess, from our perspective, why we did, why we went down that road. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, the explanation that you've given to the smart growth side of, of the world. Why do you think that that made sense? What's, what's, what's the idea here? I think the, the, the key idea here is, is that for most of the time that I was with a thousand friends, we were a two or three person uh, staff organization and mostly focused on on the policy work. And it's actually very d- difficult to be as effective as you'd like to be when you're covering the entire state of Maryland um, with a, a two-person or three-person staff. So merging with Preservation Maryland uh, presented an opportunity to be able to do more and do a better job of, of communicating that um, and, and having the kind of support um, from other members of the staff, like I said, to be able to do more of this kind of work. Yeah, it adds capacity. And I think we're seeing that across the board. We've seen it here in Maryland with some other environmental groups that have merged together and and have emerged um, much stronger as a result. Curious, you know, your background with local government, many preservation experiences through that process, or I'm curious, I guess what I'm getting at is, how have you seen smart growth and historic preservation play together, both here in Maryland or beyond? In my work with local advocates and local elected officials, uh, that there have been occasions where people are interested, particularly in downtowns, and 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 looking at successful downtowns like like the city of Frederick, and trying to, um, if you're a Hagerstown, if you're a Cumberland. Um, trying to understand what were the key decisions that were made in the city of Frederick um, to get them to the place where they are now. There's a, there's a lot of interest in that. And so, I mean, and I guess part of that big, big part of that story is how to reuse historic structures right. and perhaps um, communities that embrace that and decide not to knock them over and make parking lots generally tend to do better. Is that right? Right. That technical planning knowledge yes. there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, it's it's not like earth shattering stuff here, but um, cities that have embraced what they have and haven't tried to recreate themselves by knocking everything over, um, you know, in the, particularly in the past 15, 20 years have really kind of emerged stronger and, and better as a result of it. And, you know, you mentioned Frederick as an example of a place like that. Right. And the, the city of Frederick is so interesting. I think most people are familiar with the story of the library that's downtown. I mean, there there was 
that was not a, an easy decision. Um, there were some folks that wanted that on a greenfield site and wanted a big surface parking lot and wanted people to be able to drive up to be able to to return items and. Um, Fortunately, people in leadership positions really push to have that library downtown, and and it's 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 a wonderful facility, and and it it gets it's another reason for people to be downtown. Yeah, and it's knit right into the fabric right. of the historic downtown. So it itself is not historic, but um, it certainly has incentivized the reuse of historic buildings. And right. and that's I guess that's a perfect example of sort of the interplay between historic preservation and smart growth where there's a smart growth decision that then as a result of that investment and that infill has positively impacted the property value and the reuse of historic structures all around it. So in and of itself, maybe it wasn't a preservation project, but it certainly is a smart growth project that made preservation more possible. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's what you and I are really excited for. I'm curious, have you ever run across or are you familiar with your, in your work with smart growth, just for playing devil's advocate here for the for the audience of times when the smart growth and historic preservation community have not seen eye to eye. I actually haven't. Um, and, and, you know, we work with a lot of, because smart growth is so broad, we work with a lot of different um, communities. And, and there have been times where, for example, with the environmental community, we're not always on the same side, but I have not um, seen where there's, there's been an issue with the historic preservation community. Yeah. We hear about it, I guess, from time to time, not so much in Maryland, but in really fast growing places like DC, um, where there's, you know, the issue of a historic district and whether that prohibits or, or curtails growth or things like that. Um, so I guess perhaps it could be on the horizon, but the, I guess the idea is to have this new partnership in place so that we, we don't ever get to that place. Right. Do you have a sense that this could be, I mean, we're talking to a national audience here, that this could be a model for um, other states around the nation? I mean, is, you know, what we're doing here in linking the statewide preservation group with a smart growth program, uh, you know, there's been fits and starts. And I know the folks in Vermont have done some really great smart growth work for a long time. But a lot of our statewide preservation group, um, you know, our, our peers out there, don't have a, you know, a smart growth program and vice versa. A lot of the smart growth efforts out there and organizations aren't directly connected to the preservation world. I mean, I know we're only a few months in, so it's hard to say that this could be a model at this point, but I mean, do, do you, do you have a sense that there's an interest elsewhere in the country on, on these kinds of issues? Yes, I think there is interest. And I think that is because both preservation and smart growth are about communities and creating communities where people want to live and work and go out um, and, and do things. Yeah. And it, it just kind of makes sense that we get on the same page. And I think to some extent, too, it's about building a bigger tent for all of this advocacy work that has to get done because it's not simple. Um, and I back to your kind of um, little case study of the, the Frederick Library, you said that there were people in positions of power who made good decisions at the time. But I have to imagine that there were some advocates on the sidelines pushing them. Absolutely. You know, and so in order to get to that place, I think the preservation community needs to embrace a broader agenda and needs to understand that there's bigger issues at play. And I think that, you know, the smart growth community needs to understand that there's really valuable historic resources that can be a part of that growth strategy. Right. Um, so I know that's where you and I come at, come at this from. So we've got a beater on the bush. We talked about Smart Growth Maryland. It's this new campaign. We've merged, and you're heading up this work, and you have this all this great experience at the local level. So, Kim, 
what actually is Smart Growth Maryland going to do? Because <laughs> it sounds like fun to talk about, but you and I know it. But let's talk to, to folks out there about what it is we're actually going to be doing on a day-to-day basis to try and move this work forward. So I think the most ex- exciting thing that we'll be doing is focusing more on reinvestment in Maryland cities and towns. And not that we did not do that at 1,000 Friends of Maryland, but I would say our, our, our focus over the years has been much more on preventing uh, the loss of farmland and the loss of forested land out in the county. So I think the the merge with Preservation Maryland offers an opportunity to have a better balance between those two things, and, and, and you fundamentally need that for smart growth. That's what smart growth is. Yeah, and so the rubber hits the road, though, in the coalitions, So which is really cool. I mean, for us, I think one of the really exciting things is not only did we gain really an expert in smart growth in you, but we also gained someone who is leading coalitions in the field, and we have a real direct physical connection to work happening in some of Maryland's fastest growing and, of course, you know, surprise, surprise, most historic counties. Um, Sort of seems like those things always overlap. So tell us about where you're working and what these coalitions look like and what your work in, in those communities is. So I'm working now in Charles, Calvert, Frederick, and Anne Arundel counties. And I have local coalitions there that are comprised of both county and uh, state level organizations. Each one of them has a steering committee that meets on a regular basis to share information and strategize. And they're focused on good planning. They're focused on smart growth. So one of the big success stories in Charles is the adoption of the Watershed Conservation District. So this is a new zoning district that encompasses the Mattawoman watershed and also the headwaters of the Port Tobacco River. So it's 37,000 acres in size, so 12% of the county's land area. So it's a new zoning district. It's a protective zoning district that is going to prevent the construction of 17,000 houses um, in again in a rural area of the county, which is is exactly where they're not needed. And that's like a perfect example of where this goes from theory and idea and good planning to directly a real number that you can point to where it's like, okay, here's 17,000 homes and everything that goes with that. And for people listening who aren't familiar with Charles County, it's in the southern part of the state. And, you know, at the risk of hyperbole, it seems like there's like one road in and one road out. Um, it's, it's a little bit more than that. But I mean, it is it's two. <laughs> it's, but, but it's traffic clogged. I mean, it is really um, it's a beautiful place, but they have some really challenging transit issues. Um, and so adding another 17,000 homes would certainly not make that any better. Right. And these were homes that were going to be going in the rural area of the county, not in the area that they've designated for growth, um, which part of that area is a proposed transit corridor. Right. Um, so, so, so Charles has, has been a big win and the work that we're doing in the other counties is modeled on that coalition, but it's really focused on planning and instead of reacting to um, development projects once they've been approved and the bulldozers have arrived on the site and there's almost nothing that can be done, it's, it's being um, involved from the very beginning and planning for the kind of development that you want. Yeah, and I think from our sort of broader, you know, new campaign and organizational perspective, the idea is then to try and figure out ways to redirect that growth to places where it should be. And in many cases, not always, but in many cases, 
That just happens to be historic communities. And so then it, then all the tool sets that the preservation community can bring to bear, hopefully, will we'll make that work um, more feasible. And I don't know if we mentioned it. So you're working in Charles, but then the other communities that you're in right now. Frederick, Anne Arundel, and Calvert. And they're all in different stages of their planning process. But again, it's it's really focused on getting a good smart growth plan in place in each of those counties. Yeah, and I mean, and just in in terms of uh, land mass of the of the state of Maryland, those those counties represent a big chunk. I mean, that's a lot of land. It's a lot of land, and as you mentioned, the focus is on those counties because there's a lot of growth pressure in in those counties. Um, so it's so these are important decisions. I mean, how and where they grow. Yeah. And we're seeing, I mean, a huge influx of, you know, new people moving to the state and just sort of this growth and figuring out where to put these people. And then, you know, who knows what happens? I mean, I'm sure people listening have an Amazon HQ2 and their potential Amazon HQ2 in their backyard. But if we were to land that in Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, um, you know, Frederick is for people listening who aren't familiar is the count, the next county up. So it's, you know, one county removed from DC, basically Montgomery in the middle. Um, but if uh, Amazon or some other massive, you know, job center ends up in one of those places, it can put tremendous amount of strain and resources on these rural areas and, and more rural uh, counties, um, particularly if they don't have a strong plan in place. And I think we've seen that before where a county isn't prepared for growth. And when that, when it hits them, it's Perhaps, I mean, in my perspective, it's like one of the worst things that can happen because they're just not ready for it. Right. And and that was where things were in Charles when we started working there is, is their plan. They had a development area that was the size of Washington, D.C., and the plan for most of the rest of the county was three-acre lots. Um, so, you're, you know, you're, you're losing the, the whole... Um, sort of rural landscape to subdivisions, and you're creating a situation where everyone has to drive to everything. Right. Completely unsustainable. Right. In every sense of the word. Yes. Well, sustainability is the name of the game, and that's what we're working towards here. Um, and we'll have to do a campaign update in the near future as this matures and comes together and as, as we work towards, you know, really uniting these two issues. But before we let you go, for the woman who grew up in Fredericksburg, um, your favorite historic place or site? So I'm not going to pick a place in Fredericksburg, actually. <laughs> so I, I live in Baltimore now, and I have always loved Baltimore. I came to Baltimore a lot as a child. Um, but my place is is One Charles Center, which is a Mies van der Rohe building that was built in 1962. Um, it was part of the effort to redevelop central Baltimore. There were concerns about the decline of central Baltimore, and this was part of the Charles Center redevelopment project. Um, but it's really the, the star of that project. It's elegant. It's understated. It's urban. Yeah. It sounds like we have a mid-century modern fan in our midst right here. Me too. I don't think we had, I don't think we had identified that yet. Yeah. So, so it, and it was listed on the national register in 2000. Yeah. Um, so, but. Well, a fantastic example and, uh, makes perfect sense that the smart growth are here, like something that redeveloped an infill in the urban center. So, uh, a perfect answer and perfect conclusion to this interview Kim, again, it's a pleasure to have you here with us on the team since back in, I guess, August when we started pulling everything together and officially as of October 1. And uh, 
We look forward to reporting out in the near future about the efforts of Smart Growth Maryland, a new campaign of Preservation Maryland. Thanks again. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.